You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hello and welcome back to Mental Work. As we record this, the end of the financial year is approaching and regardless of whether we've been on top of our finances the whole time or have been sticking our heads in the sand and wanting to ignore them, it's time to take stock of our financial situation. And here to help me do that, I have Michael. Michael, who are you? I I guess you could call me your unofficial business partner. Okay, we'll go with that. Michael is also my real life partner. He has a PhD in psychology and currently works as an academic. And when he gets bored of that, he helps me with his with my finances. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, you can't keep me away from a, a good spreadsheet. No. If, if the spreadsheet doesn't exist yet, then I'll fix that quickly. Yes. So pretty much when I started my business, Michael sees a spreadsheet open on my laptop where I'm trying to do finances and plan stuff. And he's like, ooh. I could get involved in that. I could put some formulas in that. And nowadays, Michael is the one telling me to upload my receipts to my finance management software and letting me know about potential scenarios where I could earn more money. Another fun fact is I actually do most of the editing on this podcast too. So it's going to be a real treat when I have to listen back to my own vocals and edit them. You know how you have to like record like a voicemail greeting and you have to listen back to it to approve it. I hate listening to that. So this will be a real treat. Enjoy. I will. (laughs) Okay. So the reason why I wanted you on this podcast as well is because Michael does have a lot of involvement with my finances and I thought that he would be well-placed to be able to explain some stuff as we go forward because what I'm actually doing in this episode is I'm pretty much going to bear all with the finances of my private practice. I've been in private practice now on my own since January 2021. So I've had a good year, I guess, of tracking those finances. I guess in the first few months it was building up. And the reason why I wanted to do this was because it's really hard to know how you're doing finance wise. Like nobody likes talking about it. Nobody wants to share, but I thought I would be a bit different because I actually wasn't taught shame about money. (laughs) Like other people, like were you taught shame about money growing up, Michael? Not really. But again, yeah, you never hear anyone talk about like how much pocket money they got. It just wasn't the dumb thing. No, it's not. And so I thought it could be helpful for other people to hear just somebody's experience with that and just breaking it all down. There's also a lot of anxiety with trying to figure out whether you're doing okay. Everybody's so quiet about their expenses and money matters in general. Well, it just could be so helpful to have at least one bigger picture from someone in a position similar to you. You might find you're doing much better than me or about the same. What this isn't is this certainly isn't meant to be showing off. You'll see in a few minutes that I am not earning luxurious amounts of money by any stretch where I'm just got pockets full of cash. Right, Michael? Sadly not. (laughs) I wish it was different, but that's not the case so far. Yeah, I wish I had money bags and stuff. It it would definitely make the accounting a lot more fun (laughs) when the, the bank accounts are overflowing Scrooge McDuck style. Okay, so... The first thing we're going to do is we're going to provide an overview of my practice. So just so you can get the context, we're going to go through earnings, then expenses, then how to reduce expenses, and just some lessons we've learned, as well as a little bit on leasing and the final taxable income and just some general advice. Sounds good. 
It does sound good, Michael, because you're the one who mostly planned this episode. Well done. Yeah. And I guess like a gentle disclaimer, like this is all our own personal thoughts and opinions. We're by no means like trained in finances and accounting. Zero training. (laughs) Zero training. Um, So take everything with like a very large pinch of salt. This might not apply to your personal situation. Uh, It probably won't apply to your personal situation. But yeah, we just wanted to kind of like give like a broad picture of like one person's journey through their first year and a half in private practice finance wise, what's that look like? So that if you have started out in your own private practice and you're not sure how you're doing, or if you are thinking of starting out your own solo practice yourself, then this might give you a few things to kind of like think about in terms of income and expenses, as well as just like keep you grounded, I guess, as well. You're certainly not going to be making bank in your first year. If you are making bank in your first year, please send an email to (laughs) mentalhealthpodcast.gmail.com. And let us know your secret. Yeah, this might not apply to everyone's personal circumstances, but we hope that you find this useful. Yeah, so I guess just major disclaimer, obviously seek your own financial advice in any situation. This is just meant to be Yeah, kind of just one person's experience, and I hope it's helpful to you. So let's start off with the context. For me, I try to see about 14 clients a week, although the exact number can fluctuate a fair bit, and it has through COVID as well. There's been lots of COVID cancellations. As well, me moving offices was a big um, reason why sometimes I didn't see as many clients. I know people who try to see more clients And the reason why I don't is because one of my top practice values is actually not burning out. And the way that I do that is by seeing less clients, which obviously affects my income, but that's just a bit of context behind that. I usually try to see clients four days a week. When I first started out, I went from one day to one and a half days, and then I think up to two days, and now I'm doing three and a half days. I have set aside about 10 weeks for non-work-related things. That includes being sick, taking holidays and completing training. Again, I think I'm quite generous in this respect, but it actually is a lesson that I learned from last year because I did burn out at the end of the year. And this year, I made a commitment to myself to take a week off every six weeks, which by the way, is going really well so far. I typically charge $180 a session and I'm a non-endorsed psychologist. So that means my clients receive a Medicare rebate of $88.25 and I think 1.6% more after the new financial year. This year, I was also doing some part-time counseling work at a university college and I ran a few mental health first aid workshops. This brought in a little extra income, but meant fewer hours working in private practice too. So that's a balancing act as well. That's just to give you a bit of context. Is there anything that I've missed? No, I think that's a a pretty accurate picture of how you have operated over the last year. So, of course, in your your own individual circumstances, if you see more clients, you're going to earn more money. Mm. If you take more weeks off, then you're going to earn a bit less than this. But this is just to kind of like get a grounding for some of the numbers that we'll be talking about later on. Yeah, and we kind of have our first number. So we're going to have a look at earnings first. And I completely forget where this number comes from. So maybe you can help me out, Michael. I've got written in front of me $79,000 from private practice. So what does that actually include? So that's just all of the money that you have brought in from clients that have come to see you privately. So that means the full fees, your bulk billing, Mm. uh, the few people you saw in like hardship, that's come to about $79,000 over the last year, which is really good. I think for someone who's starting out in this area and because you have been doing a few other things on the side as well, we've calculated that you brought in about an additional 15,000 or so through your side hustles. So that's your mental health first aid workshops and doing some work at the university college too. 
So combined, that's, if I can do my math really quickly, that's 94, 94,000. Oh, actually, I actually have it written down in front Yeah, of you me. did have it written down. <laughs> I was like, no math needed, but, you know, knock yourself out. I'm glad I got it right then. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's a total of 94,000. I mean, like when I say that number 79,000, I feel pretty good about myself. Like that is just cold, hard, like my earnings. That is what I have generated from the practice. Yeah. And you should feel really proud of that. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. So well done. That sounds pretty good. But what if I want to earn more? What could I do? So if you wanted to try and like bring that figure up to a a six digit number and, you know, why wouldn't you want to try and, you know, make as much as you can? Mm. The first thing that would be really simple to do is to increase your fees. Yes. So obviously this is like an uncomfortable conversation that you might have with your clients regarding fees and potential fee increases. So it can be something that a lot of people would rightly want to avoid, but it's definitely a very simple way of increasing your earnings. So if your earnings are quite low, you might want to take this into consideration. But then that also raises the question of like, how do you know if your fees are low? And the very simple answer to that is to take a look around. Not everyone will have their fees listed on their website. Much to my annoyance. Yes, it is to my annoyance too, because issues of transparency and all that, but that's an episode for another day. But a lot of people do have their fees on their website. So if you take a look around at the psychology practices operating in your area, you should pretty quickly be able to get a sense of what most people are asking for. And so you have a good idea of whether or not your personal fees are sitting in that range. But it's also, I guess, comparing it to what you think clients will pay you for as well. So for example, if you have a degree and you're also an art therapist and you're offering combined talk therapy with art therapy, that might be something that clients are willing to pay you more above the area average for your services. And just for the record as well, I've actually raised my fee about $30 since when I first started. I was dramatically undercharging. I had a look at my first client and I charged them $152 for their first session at the start of last year. And just to give you an indication, I guess the general fees in my area are somewhere between $170 and $270. So it was way below that. It actually hasn't been, I haven't had any trouble raising my fees. Like that's another podcast episode in itself. But honestly, I've given clients the notice, haven't heard a peep from anyone. So if you want to increase your income, raising fees are a good thing. Of course, you have to take into account the area, but also your own values like affordability versus your income as well. Bear in mind that the more that you earn, the more you can invest in your business and increase it. So maybe we'll talk about this a bit later, but one of the reasons I was able to take out a lease is because I had $30,000 in savings. So I was able to furnish and not have a hit to my income and salary at all. And that was 30,000 that you had earned through your business. So that wasn't 30,000 out of your personal savings. That was 30,000 that you had earned in your private practice. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're able to invest in that lease without taking a, a dent to your personal finances. Mm. And on the upside, I can offer my clients increased stability in having them on practice location. I can also furnish it the way that I like it. And I got the atmosphere that I really want to have for my clients. So moving on to the next way you can increase your earnings, say that increasing your fees, not something that seems to be really viable. Well, the next thing you could do is increase your caseload. So you should take a a look at your current caseload and see if you have the capacity to take on more clients whilst also staving off burning out as well, because that's really important. But if you do have the additional capacity to take on even one client a week, that can have a a significant impact. 
So that's that's how we do it. And I guess like when you look at kind of salaries that you have as an employee, it's like this is how practices generate extra income as well. They either increase their fees or they get you to see more clients or they offer additional services. Yeah. So one thing you could do is increase your, your caseload capacity. And obviously that is something that if you can do and it seems feasible, then that's great. But in your current circumstances, if it doesn't seem feasible, then you might want to look at how you're working to see if there's some way to increase your capacity. So that might mean looking at your admin processes, seeing if there's a way to like cut out an hour of work each week if possible, because every hour that you free up that you can be used to see clients is going to make it so you are able to earn a lot more money in the long run. Even if that's just like one extra client every fortnight, for example, it will have a big difference on how much you end up at the end of the financial year. So with 79,000, remember that's what I've just brought in from the practice. We're about to go through my expenses and my taxable income in a moment. And the reason why we went through the additional ways that you can increase your income is because I think that a lot of people would want to earn more than 79,000. Like I see on kind of groups where people are like expecting 100K and oh boy, I wish that too. But I guess it's harder than we think it is, but it's still something to be proud of to generate even 79,000, right? I think so. I remember it was very exciting when we realized you had broken it even. That that was a very exciting day and a cause for celebration in itself. But obviously, like if you want to be able to live the lifestyle that you want, as well as have a, a sustainable private practice then you are going to need a certain amount of money to achieve that. So mm. trying to find ways and means to get that level of income that is required to live and work in the way that you want is something worth the the time investment and in trying to figure out how to turn that dream into a reality. Yeah. Let's move on then to the expenses. And I'll say the taxable income as well, because I think this is what most people would be interested in. So let's remember, I've started out with saying that I earned $79,000 in a private practice and my expenses were... Do you want to read out the number? Yeah, not really, but it's 36000 Oh, that's a lot of money, hey? That's uh, quite a sum. So if we take uh, the difference from that, then we can see my final taxable income is about 60000 And it's not, not a huge amount, but it's decent considering that I'm still establishing my practice, only 1.5 years since starting, developing my client caseload, working out and fixing practice and financial inefficiencies. And there's been a lot of one-off expenses in setting up, especially with outfitting my office. And that also excludes the $5,000 that I put into my super. So let's just go back and talk about expenses. Why on earth have I spent $36,000? It's a scary number actually when you see it written down like that and like if I was just to try and think back over the last year, how you could possibly have spent 36000 mm. it seems really unimaginable. Like that must be like a, a rounding error there or something that's kind of like led to this really big fear. Well, it does seem like I'm just giving away money and just like recklessly spending. But, you know, I just want to assure the listener, I'm actually quite miserly when it comes to money. Like I'm very careful. I don't excessively spend things. The most excess that I have is that sometimes I compulsively buy soft toys and little fidget stuff for the office. But that isn't adding up to $36,000. No, it, there's definitely not $36,000 worth of stuffed toys sitting in your office. But we have tracked all of your expenses over the year so far, and that number is accurate. And when we break it down into the different categories of like expenses, then it starts to make sense why 
it has added up to that number. So the biggest expense that you had over the last year was room hire and leasing. Mm -hmm. And imagine this is probably for solo private practitioners who aren't employing anyone, probably their biggest single expense. Yeah. So at the start of the year, when you were casually renting from other psychologists, you're paying about $100 a day, I think. Plus GST, yeah. Plus GST. Obviously for each day that you work, that adds up. So if you're doing two days a week, that's $200 a week. If you're doing four days a week, that's like $400 a week. And if you extend that out over the whole year, you can see that becomes like quite a large financial liability. For you, even though you spent about 9700 on your room renting and leasing, that should have actually been a little bit higher again, because for a short period of time, you actually had an office for $0 for mm. free for a while. Mm. So next year, that cost could be a, a little bit higher yet. How much is that as a percentage? It's a bit less than a, I say about it's a quarter. A of, quarter. of your total expenses. Okay, so about 25% of my expense is just on room hire and my lease as well. I took out a lease in April this year and to furnish that was 9100 Now, this is something that I could have skimped on a little bit. I could have gotten more secondhand furniture of Gumtree or other places and kind of skimped on the furnishing. The reason I didn't was because I wanted to make it a really, really nice office. I wanted the furniture to last and I also wanted to attract other practitioners into my office. So this is kind of the long-term plan that I'd have somebody share the office with me on days that I'm not working. Yeah. So I think we agreed that this was something that was worth spending a bit more money yeah. on because as you pointed out, like the client and other potential practitioner experiences, like really, really important. And I do want to say that like, this isn't an excessive amount for a room because that said, I did spend about $5,000 just on couches and desks, but we also bought a lot of things from Kmart. So it's both an expensive office, but also there are some cheap stuff in there too to offset it. So I don't think 9,700 if you're furnishing an office is an excessive amount that I've spent. No, you could certainly spend a lot more than $9,000 on a, a single couch. Like we saw some very expensive couches oh, we and, sure and desks, which uh, would be nice to have, certainly, but not what you need when you're still starting out. Yeah, I remember we saw the ones like that had the footrests that go out and I was like, oh, this is so nice, but yeah. Maybe for the next round of furnishing. Maybe. Okay. And other expenses. So I spent about $3,100 on phone, fax, email, cloud storage, and other IT. So that includes like my iPad. Yep. Yep. Um, internet. Includes your internet. Incl yep. yep. In includes like your monthly phone bill. A lot of those kind of subscription things that add up over time. I spent about 1700 on professional development and that was mostly the PD I did in the past year would have been the schema therapy training. And prior to that, I did the EMDR training, but I think that was last financial year now. And I spent another 1700 on payment fees using Halaxy. So Halaxy is a practice management software and you can process fees from there. Lastly, superannuation payments at about $5,000. Superannuation isn't a necessary expense to run your business. Your business will still survive without you making any superannuation payments to yourself. But obviously it's very important that when you do work for yourself that, that you are making regular contributions to your superannuation fund because no one else is going to be doing it for you. And if you want to have a decent superannuation come retirement, then the onus is on you to help fund that superannuation. The good news is that superannuation transfers are a claimable expense. To do that, you have to let your superannuation fund know that you intend to claim those superannuation transfers 
as an expense. It doesn't happen automatically. And for every superannuation fund, it's a little bit different. I know that for our super fund that you just need to submit an online form the same day that you do your tax return. Pretty straightforward, but it's very important that you do that. Otherwise, the tax man may come chasing you down for expenses that uh, you haven't claimed correctly. And that's terrifying. I know it's not an expense, but it's probably important to mention tax at this stage because some people get really caught out having not put aside tax and at the end of the financial year, they're like, oh crap, I have a 15000 tax bill. So I think my tax, last time I remember looking at it, it was about $25,000. Yeah, and it's important that you save for that as you go. So just as you are setting aside money for your superannuation, hopefully, you should be setting aside some money for tax as well. So instead of your employer making regular contributions towards your tax bill uh, every paycheck, you need to be doing that yourself. And we've seen some pretty horrifying stories on Facebook groups where people have not realized that they need to set aside tax and at tax return time realize that they have to pay $20,000 or some other nightmarish amount and they have not been setting aside any money to that date. Yeah, I'd feel sick if that was me. Not a good position to be in. Mm -hmm. So it's much better to save more than you might need. The way we do it is we just calculate the monthly earnings and use that as a baseline for how much tax you might need to set aside. If you hadn't made any money in a particular month because you had a whole lot of expenses offset that, you might not need to set aside much for tax. On the other hand, if you have made a lot of money, it's probably a good idea to set aside a little bit extra. If you set aside too much, you can always put that into your personal bank account <laughs> or invest it in your business or do whatever you want with it because it's still your money. I personally Personally, would rather just have more money saved up for the tax bill than not enough. Absolutely. Me too. And so like when we look at the expenses, let's say I reduced that by $10,000, that would mean I'd be, you know, I'd increase my taxable income by about $10,000. Yep. So it'd be a really good idea if I could reduce expenses where possible. So how could we do that, Michael? The first way to know how to reduce expenses is to know what your expenses are. Correct. So that means you need to have some good records, be transparent and honest with yourself about where your money is going. Take some time out every fortnight or every month to make sure that your expense records are up to date. Again, we used my personal favorite tool, a spreadsheet to help forecast what our, I say our as if it's my business. Well, you're my unofficial <laughs> business partner, so I guess it's yours as well. We use a spreadsheet to forecast what Brunwyn's expenses would be before <laughs> Brunwyn even started her practice. So mm. we looked at how much it would cost to have a phone over the whole year, how much it would cost to have uh, a GoFax subscription, room rental costs, all those things, and calculated it out over the whole year. Then use that as a starting point to figure out, well, what's really necessary? What things can you potentially do without? What things are there alternatives that you could choose from that might be a bit more affordable? Mm -hmm. So do you need that really expensive phone plan with Telstra or can you make do with a cheaper plan from Vodafone, for yeah, example? And I think it's really important to know that sometimes with expenses, the only way you know whether you can do without it is by 
kind of using it and then seeing. So the best example I have of this is with a fax number. I was paying $15 a month to have a fax number and I got super frustrated with fax when what happens with fax, electronic fax, is that sometimes it doesn't handshake with the receiving party. So that means it doesn't make a connection to the other person's fax machine and then it doesn't send and then you have to resend it again. Frustrating. It was so frustrating and I hated keeping having to do it. I hated using this old technology and in the end I worked out that I could just do without the fax. In the end, I went with secure email and that was a very minimum to zero dollar cost. And not all practices have their email address or referrals. So it's much faster for me to give the admin a quick phone call, say that I'm a psychologist wishing to send correspondence to the doctor. I still have a cover sheet on my email template that says attention doctor. And the admin is happy to give me that email address. So that was, a you know, $15 times 12. That's a saving of 15 times 12, it's $180. Nice. We totally did that without cutting anything out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we know how to times our tables, right? Sure. Sure. This is why uh, none of this should be like considered accounting advice. (laughs) Yeah, I think this highlights it quite well. So the other things like that I've tried to do to reduce expenses is, and remember like this is kind of balancing efficiency with cost. So I actually did try out a virtual admin at the start of this year. And that was a whole thing in itself. I can do a whole episode on it. I think it would be helpful for you guys to hear. But mainly what happened is that pretty much I didn't have enough work for the admin. So it wasn't worth their time to actually service me as a client as well. It wasn't worth my time to actually have the admin because I could do a lot of the things faster than instructing them and also the additional time cost in terms of training them. And from their perspective, a client who actually doesn't bring in many hours, it just wasn't mutually beneficial. So in the end, I did not have a virtual admin and I'm quite happy with it. I did refine my processes a bit further. For example, I took my phone number off my website and now I only receive email inquiries, which hasn't affected my referral stream at all. And it's made it much more efficient for me. Yeah, it's been a a very interesting experience, I think, with the virtual admin. And I'm sure listeners will be interested to hear more about that in an upcoming episode, right? Absolutely. Yes, upcoming episode. Yeah, reducing expenses. Other than that, like I do envy people who have a home office because when I look at my lease, my lease is about 18000 for the whole year. So the room itself is like $9,000. But then when you consider outgoings, it's about 18000 Other things we learned along the way is that electricity is not included in no. those outgoings. Yeah. Yep. That was fun when we saw the electricity bill just turn up in the mail. We're like, oh, oh, okay. And well, the- they said that they were going to cut off the electricity. They were like, hey, we're going to cut off your electricity in two days. Bye. Fun lease things. Yeah. And internet as well was not included with this particular lease. So those were costs they had to add on. And finally, another expense that we learned we could do without, so they are more hassle than they're worth or not a good return on investment, was actually an accountant. Now, this would be really different for everybody. For me, having grown up as like a poor uni student who studied their PhD for eight years and has been on Centrelink several times, I actually don't have any assets. I don't even own a car. So for me, being a sole trader, it doesn't require much accounting. My biggest asset is probably my laptop or my bike. For you, your situation might be different. You might have a house and you might have other assets. So it might be worthwhile for you to have an accountant because then you can discuss whether a company structure is better for you rather than a sole trader. Right, Michael? That's right. I think for most people operating as a solid private practitioner, you probably won't need an accountant if you 
take the time to read up on most stuff to do with like tax and income and expenses. It's relatively straightforward. Unfortunately, things can get complicated pretty quickly. Having a company structure, if you have that, is probably going to require the involvement of an accountant. But having said that, you did get in touch with an accountant a couple of times at the start of your private practice journey and you did get a lot of good information from them, Mm -hmm. but it just didn't seem necessary at the time to, I guess, have employ one on a, at an ongoing kind of arrangement and and have them submit your tax returns. And no, so for me, I feel like it's simple enough for me to still do my tax return because I've been quite good. Well, Michael has, Michael has been quite good in making sure that we're up to date with all the finances and keeping tracking of it and making me upload my receipts and stuff like that. I just feel like uh, an accountant would be redundant. I think so. It'd be an additional expense that I think is just not necessary. One benefit from doing all of this stuff yourself is that you have a, a much greater idea of where your money is coming from and where it is going. Whereas I think if you have an accountant, all of your expenses can be made a little bit distant for want of a better word, mm. you could have all of your receipts like thrown into a shoebox, which you send off to your accountant once a year. Then they tell you, you know, well, this is just what your expenses were. And that's the end of it. Whereas if you're tracking those expenses, logging them manually as they come in, you're acutely aware of how much you're spending on that internet bill. And maybe you'll be more inclined to seek out something that's a, a little bit cheaper because you're aware of how much you're spending on it. I think it has made me more aware and I am more inclined to be like, okay, I'm using this service. Do I need it? And is there something better or is there something cheaper and better? So it has prompted me to kind of look at my expenses in that way. So we did mention earlier that we're going to spend a little bit more time unpacking the leasing experience, at least from a financial perspective. Depending on your specific situation, I think leasing could actually be a lot cheaper than renting. Mm. We figured out for Bronwyn when she was paying $100 a day to rent a room from someone else, if she actually wanted to work four days a week, then that would work out to about $20,000 over a whole year. Most of the single room office spaces that we've seen available on realcommercial.com and other real estate websites are actually far cheaper than that. So anywhere from like $7,000 to maybe $15,000 a year. Obviously, there's a few other expenses on top of that, such as electricity and insurance. But it's definitely like a lot more feasible than one might imagine. Mm. I think when we talk about lease agreements, it can sound a bit scary if you haven't dipped your toe into those waters before. I don't want to mislead the listener, but we did spend about nine months like and a lot of self-education and a lot of consultation, a lot of reading just to make ourselves aware of the things involved in taking out a lease because it is a contractual legal agreement that you have. And even when we met with the real estate agent for our lease, one of the things that they did was they wanted to make sure I fully understood what it was that I was going in. His words were, I don't want you to be starry-eyed. Yeah, and I think it's all fair enough because, you know, they obviously want a, a good customer as well. But I don't think it really requires any more stress than taking out a residential lease. Mm. Like it's pretty obvious that like there's certain things that you need to do as the, the person renting an apartment or a house, you know, that you need to pretty much return the the house in the same condition that you found it, for example. And there'll be certain things that will be your expenses to cover. There'll be certain things that will be the, the owner of the building to cover. It's not too different. And when you think about it like that, then I think like a lot of those fears can be allayed somewhat. For me, like the biggest reason to take out a lease was A, because I think it's cheaper over the year. Like we know even uh, we projected $20,000 if I continued room renting. And that's kind of like an average price. Other rooms that we saw were asking for 120 and upwards. Yeah. 
So that's kind of a conservative average estimate. For me, my lease is going to cost about 18500 so it's still cheaper. But for me also, the biggest thing was security of location. It was such a pain in the ass moving clients to different locations and it reduces the stability of my client load as well as just making it difficult for my clients. Clients need stability and I want to provide them with that care. So for me, it was so much better to take out my lease than be at the whim of the person who I'm leasing the room from who could at any moment turn around and be like, man, I'm moving or things aren't working out and then boot me out in like two weeks. Well, another benefit was that for taking out the lease is that you have access to this office seven days a week instead of just renting a room for (laughs) four days a week. So that means you have options and options are always good. So one of those options could be you could use those extra three days to see even more clients. Mm. So that is one way that you can increase your capacity to see clients. If the thought of seeing any more clients just stresses you out, and I can imagine that would be the case for a lot of people, mm. then you could use those three days for someone else to use your premises. And then they can pay you a bit of money and that can help offset your lease costs. If you're able to share that lease with someone else, you could actually find that the final cost of that lease is almost half as much as what you might be paying to rent a room casually. I guess the reason I was talking about this is because like we said earlier, the lease was my biggest expense. That's about 25000 So if there's any way that you can reduce this, it's well worth investing your time and effort into doing so. Agreed. Okay. So what we've covered so far is we've worked out that I brought in $79,000, but then my expenses are $36,000, which leaves me with a final taxable income of $60,000. Again, not a huge amount, and I'd love to increase it because to me, when I look at that, I'm like, oh, that's a bit sad. <laughs> when you're looking at seek.com as what the average psychologist pay yeah. is, it's a little bit higher than $60,000. Yes. But at the same time, you know, this has been your first year, first full year working in private practice yeah. and work isn't always about money. It's a lot about money, it kind but of it's, is. it's not all about money. And having, it would be nice to have money. I would like for you to have more money too. Mm. Yes. I, I'm supportive of this, but I'm also supportive of like a, a workplace where you have like complete flexibility over your hours and how many clients you see, all that kind of stuff that you just don't get when you're working for someone else, that that flexibility and freedom. It's very hard to put a dollar value on that. I agree. Like even though in my other job, I was earning about 82000 pro rata, I would still rather be a solo practitioner just for the burnout prevention because now if I burn out, I only have myself to blame. That's be- right. Because I'm working too many hours and I'm seeing too many clients and I'm taking on too many clients that take a lot of emotional energy or practical time. And then I need to do something about that. And it sounds a bit scary, but I also really enjoy the responsibility because then I can keep myself healthy and well. I imagine it must be nice not having to muster up the courage to beg your boss for fewer Yeah, clients. I was very annoying when I was an employee. I'd be like, can I do three days? Can I do half days? Yes, I was really pushing the boundaries, but now I'm not pushing anybody's boundaries. Woohoo! Yeah. So next year, what are you going to do to improve your finances? Well, hopefully next year business will be more stable because I'll be working in one permanent location instead of constantly moving. And I've swapped student counselling hours. So when I was working uh, at a university residential college for additional private practice hours, which will bring in more. I'm hoping to share the office with another practitioner who will contribute to lease costs. And I'm currently doing an expense on that because I'm bumping up my ad, which is on Gumtree, by the way, uh, to try and attract people. I've got a beautiful room. 
It's really nice. <laughs> um, so I would love to share with somebody else. It also reduces isolation and I've got no more one-off furniture purchases. So I made my last furniture purchase, which was a buffet table, and I can't envisage myself expending more on furniture, which would be really nice. So hopefully I'll be even more stable in the next financial year. Sounds really good to me. And yeah. I look forward to doing this again next year to see if that has been the case. Yeah, I hope next year it's not like everything crumbled after this. Dream versus reality. Yes. So we've got a few final things to kind of end on. And again, this was Michael's doing. He's very amazing in that he wrote down some general advice that might help. But keep in mind the disclaimer that we are not financial advisors. Oh, no. No, not by any stretch. No. So what's some practical tips that listeners can take away, Michael? This is very boring, but <laughs> these are supposed to be practical tips. Very practical. And this is a very practical one. And that is make a budget. What? You mean don't have like a magic wand? Like that no, was just, okay. But, you know, spreadsheets are the closest thing we have to magic. <laughs> okay. And you can make as many spreadsheets as you want. So it doesn't have to be a spreadsheet. You could do this with paper and pen as well, but obviously spreadsheets you know hard to compete with that i'm going to extract that as a quote for the episode spreadsheets and magic michael i'm sure someone has said it before me okay but make, making a budget is really important it's really important to know where your money is coming from where your money is going and once you know those things then you are well positioned to try and increase your that incoming money or outgoing money mm. This exercise was really helpful to us when we were in the planning stages of Bronwyn's private practice. And for example, it made us realize that you can't bulk bill everyone. Yes, essentially would have been charging half as much as you do now. I would have actually been negative money um, because my income from every session is about $90 and the bulk bill rate is $87. So I'm pretty much losing money when I bulk bill. But it's not a charity. So you need to be making a bit of money and bulk billing everyone. It was a, a nice thought, yes, but not something that was financially viable. But second tip would be to allow time to get set up and going. So many businesses are not profitable in their first year because of how many initial outlays they have and also just figuring out how to make things efficient. There's a lot of processes that Bronwyn has found ways to improve on, uh, additional efficiencies and all those sorts of things that have helped make things faster and cheaper over the year. But these things come with practice. You need to try things out, see what works, what doesn't work, and then just refine your processes and to refine your expenses. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, we haven't really met anyone who's gone into solo private practice who has gone bankrupt either. There's a lot of business out there for private practitioners at the moment. So as long as your business plan is relatively sound, you should be okay with time. So those are all good points, Michael. Another thing that you might consider doing is registering for GST. It'll make your finances a bit more complicated, but it will increase the amount you can claim back from your expenses. And this is something you could have like a one-off appointment with accountant with, right? I think so. Yeah, to kind of talk about it, better understand it, make sure you're doing it correctly. When you're registered for GST, you can claim back the entire GST portion of an expense. If you're not registered, you can only use that portion to reduce your tax or income. Doesn't make sense to me. I'm reading what Michael has written, but I think it is better. It's pretty much always going to be better for a health professional. Depending on your profession, you may have to charge GST on the services that you provide, but for most health professionals, you won't be collecting GST on income, but you will be paying GST on your expenses. So if you're registered for GST, you can actually get back all of that GST that you've paid on your expenses. And I'd say that across all of the expenses that you've had this year, 
you would probably get about $3,000 or so back just on GST payments. Nice. If you weren't registered for GST, then those expenses can help offset your income. So it will reduce your taxable income. But if you're registered for GST, you can actually like collect back the whole dollar amount of mm. that GST. It's not just used for offsetting Okay. It's it's complicated stuff. Yeah, I don't get it. It took me a while to explain it to okay. Rowan, and I think she's I forgotten again. <laughs> so it might be time for a GST oh, refresher. No, I don't want a GST refresher. It'll be fun. It's so boring. Money is fun. No. Okay, moving on. Last practical Moving tip. on. Track your actual expenses. I feel like this overlaps with the make a budget, but whereas a budget is all about forecasting maybe what might happen in the future, tracking your actual expenses is what it sounds like. When you make an expense, you actually write that down somewhere and make a log of it. It's really important to stay on top of where your money is actually going because that will allow you to update your budget and make it more accurate as you go. You might find that expenses crop up that you haven't planned for. You might find that you have budgeted for expenses that never actually happened. So if you want your budget to stay accurate, then you need to keep updating it as you go. Mm. And we use an Australian online service called Rounded to track our income and expenses. This is one of the services that Michael found, which is cheaper than the service that everybody else uses. Everybody else seems to use Xero. We had a look at Xero. It just seems unnecessarily complicated for a solo private practitioner. And we think Rounded is way better as well. It's an Australian service. They're also really responsive to feedback. And hopefully they've taken aboard my feedback to allow people to have a referral link because if they have, I'll chuck it in the show description. I don't think they have yet. It's still there to do. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That is okay. Uh, Well, you know, I still recommend it anyway, even without the referral benefit. Yeah, Rounded is is great because it's actually been built for people who are... Yeah, it's specifically for sole traders. Sole traders, yeah. Whereas zero would get you a lot more bells and whistles, mm. it's quite likely you probably won't need all those bells and whistles either. No, and then you have to pay an accountant to show you how to use it. That's right. A lot of practice management software will integrate with zero directly, whereas Rounded does not. Instead, Rounded will link in with your bank account and it will track in all the expenses and incomes that are associated with that bank account and help you with categorizing them for tax time. It's all we need for doing our taxes. For Xero, I have heard that a lot of people don't even integrate it with Halaxy and oh. other private practice software because it actually makes things more difficult. Oh, so there you go. So there's that. Okay, cool. Well, I think we're coming towards the end, Michael. So overall, how have I done in the first year of business? I'd say it's a, an overwhelming success. Cool. Thanks, Han. And it's clear that there's still room for improvement, yep. which is good because that means that a net profit of 60000 mm. isn't the ceiling and yes. it's not as, as good as it's going to get. Yeah. There's, there's room to, to manoeuvre and increase those profits. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the next financial year holds. Yeah. It's going to have good things, I'm sure. I hope so, because, yeah, no, listen, I would not be happy if I kept on only $60,000. I'd probably just do something that involves much less stress. I hope that I can earn more in the future. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you found this really insightful. Yeah. It's something that we don't hear discussed too much in the, you know, between practitioners or in the Facebook groups. And hopefully it's something that will, if you are doing your own private practice and you've got no idea how you're going, well, now you have one other private practice with which to compare to and hopefully it'll make you feel a little bit better about how you're going. Yeah, I hope this has just opened up the conversation and give you a little bit of insight into how one person does it. And thank you, Michael, for coming on board and for helping me explain these numbers. It was my pleasure. Okay. 
Thanks, listener, and catch you later. If you do have any feedback on the episode, would love to hear from you. Mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com is the email to get in touch with me, Bronwyn. That's mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions, feedback, any other topics that you'd like me to cover. Otherwise, take care. Catch you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.